0: Does the story work?
1: Let's find out. Welcome to the Story Grid Showbunner podcast. We'll be answering this question using the Story Grid method developed by Sean Coyne by analyzing hit TV series to find out what works, what doesn't work, and why. And today we're diving into Game of Thrones Season 2. Let the games begin.
0: So what's the lowdown? Uh, one sentence review from our three editors. I'll start off... uh, I really just, I really enjoy the intertwining storylines, how the, all the setups are done really masterfully. And, and it's just really, it's just always intriguing. And, and I want to read more all the time. Mel?
2: Yeah, the Game of Thrones has officially started in this season and with everyone wanting to be the next king, no matter who has a right to it and who doesn't. Perule?
1: Um Well, in season one, we saw a lot of hunger. And this has continued and has now kicked off a war.
0: So what are the, uh, so we're going to talk about the six core questions, editor six core questions today. So let's go over those real quick because a lot of you guys are familiar with it. It's a great way to analyze any story and figure out if it works. So uh, the first one is what's the genre? The second is what are the conventions and obligatory scenes of that genre? Then there's the point of view. The fourth one is what are the objectives of desire of the protagonist? Uh, Five is what's the controlling idea and theme? And then number six is what are the beginning hook, the middle build, and the ending payoff for the story?
1: Great, so we start with the global genre. So (laughs) it's not easy with Game of Thrones to necessarily know what the global genre is. Um, So in a multi saga like Game of Thrones, how do you work out what the genre is? And why should you work out what the genre is? Well, why is because we're trying to dissect it to understand why we love it, why it's compelling, and so by analysing this masterwork, we are trying to understand how stories are constructed and how we can be inspired for our own stories. How do we determine genre? Well, one method is to look at the core event of the season. What? So what's the big showdown that happens towards the end of the series or the season? So in season two, we have the big battle scene, which is a core event for the war story, which I initially thought, I was like, ah, OK, it, this must be a war story. but um, in discussions with the other editors we then talked about how actually we also have an attempted revolution stannis is trying but fails to overcome the lannisters in fact all the kings really potential kings are trying to overcome the lannisters so this leads us to the society genre there are power battles throughout the story amongst all the households within the all the individual households and then across them as well and Uh, And of course, so that the global genre is society, but it's heavily, heavily laced with other genres. We have horror. We still have the white walkers who are now emerging for battle across the border, over the wall. We have action. We have the Stark children on the run to save their lives. Um, We have John, of course, beyond the wall. He's against nature. He's cold. He's his uncle is missing, he's fighting the wildlings. And then you have love. We have the twisted, I don't even know if you can call it love. It's some sort of weird chemistry between Melisandre and Stannis Baratheon. Um, and then you have the, the very beautiful Rob Stark falling for the very beautiful Talisa. I don't know how to say her surname, Magair. Uh, and they end up getting married in secret, which will obviously lead to their downfall.
0: So uh, good, good analysis there, Perul. So what are the uh, objects of desire, Mel?
2: Um, since we are still having a society story, then we know, okay, they're still wanting power, especially all the ones seeking the throne, like Renly, Stannis, Daenerys. They want to gain the throne. <clears throat> the Lannisters, they want to win the war, beat down the revolutions, and of course, keep Joffrey in power. And the Starks, they want like peace. They want to have the North for themselves. They want to have, want to have it secure. No Lannisters there anymore. And also revenge the death of Ned Stark. Um, Parul, you want to get us started with the beginning hook?
0: I want to, yeah. say, something. I, I want to say something real quick about that. So, sure. so, so uh, I, I think Of, course, it's
2: of really,
0: course you do, Randall. Of course I do. <laughs> no, I, I just think it's really um, masterful. The way that Daenerys, so you mentioned Daenerys wants the, wants the throne. You know, right now she's she's still a little timid. You know, she her her brother was really adamant about the throne, and she was just kind of trying to get through every day of her life. And she kind of came into her own at the end before her husband died. But in really season one and season two, she's not seen as a threat to the throne. She she still. Thinks maybe about it, but she doesn't talk about it as much until the later seasons. And she's she's kind of an afterthought for both the author and the readers and all the other characters in the Seven Kingdoms because she's not even close to being even a threat, even though she has the name, right? So I think it's just great the setup of she's in there. She has some really iconic scenes where you know the dragons appear after the fire and and just little little every time you see her something really kind of memorable is happening then that's really great greatly done by the author but but it the build up from her having nothing being a slave being a you know being raped by her husband every day taking control of that situation taking control of the dragons and then progressing through the seasons through these seasons 3 to 3 through 7 and just getting you know taking getting to it a point where she's actually competitive for the throne is just amazing and it's really well done. This is a really good uh, uh, kind of lesson for anyone who's trying to build this, this huge scope uh, series and worlds for the setup between the different books. Yeah, yeah it's, but it's, her it's,
2: ultimate goal is still to go to, uh, get King's Landing for herself to be, become queen. That's yes. still that, that's what's thriving yeah. her. And she, but she still has to struggle with all those other challenges from raising to be a slave to become the dragon queen. Someone, someone asked me recently, um, a, a sort of uh,
1: debut novelist has asked me, do I really have to finish all my storylines? Because he kept coming up with different storylines. And this is a really good example of how the storyline is not only closed, because, I mean, there's arguments about whether or not it was closed in the right way, but it runs consistently throughout. So even though it was in the backdrop, like you said, it ends up coming into its, in, its own power by the end of, the, the series
0: I'd, um, I'd answer that I don't, I don't know how you answered that client, but uh, but you know do you have to close out your storylines? You don't have to, but if you want the readers to be happy with you, exactly. <laughs> I, I would try to yeah <laughs> yeah bring yeah, them absolutely. all
2: together in the big finale and in the end
1: right um, okay, so the beginning, middle, and end um, there's a lot that's going on. there's so many different substories that happen, but if we focus just on mostly on the society story so the the power struggle we have in the beginning hook we have Tyrion who becomes the hand of the king uh Cersei's not very happy about this and Tyrion's focus because he's now become strategic um and we were talking about this earlier earlier how he begins in season one actually being a bit of a he's a bit of a layabout he just likes to uh, go to the whorehouses and drink but in in this season he's really his, you can really see his intellect has been turned on and he's trying to prepare for war and to reign in Joffrey's worst instincts. Um, the Lannisters are being attacked by all the other potential kings who are claiming thrones. We've got Renly Baratheon, his brother Stannis Baratheon. And of course, Rob Stark um, is, has been defeating and taking over the North and is pro- proclaimed the King of the North um, and is now starting to send starting to think about brokering an alliance with uh, Renly Baratheon. Meanwhile, Daenerys, who we have spoken about, she's in a weakened state in the beginning. Like you say, a little bit of an afterthought, although she will come into her own power. Um, in the middle build, you have Rob is starting to gain power. So he, he wins a decisive victory against the Lannisters um at the battle of oxcross and is, is starting to annoy joffrey which obviously means more work for Tyrion to keep him um keep him from his worst instincts because actually joffrey starts to try and beat up this is when he starts getting his um right hand man to beat up what's her name i forget the name of the girl um stark sansa yeah um Littlefinger has convinced Caitlin to exchange Jamie Lannister for her daughters. This is a this is a bad move um, but Caitlin is desperate for news of her daughters and she doesn't know that actually one of them has already escaped. Uh, Tyrion meanwhile it, continues to use his wits and does everything he can to sort of plant spies around and discovers that Cersei has been uh, experimenting or commissioning um, someone to create wildfire. So he starts to think about how he can use this in the upcoming battle against Stannis. It's basically preparation for war. Meanwhile, Daenerys is taking refuge in the city of Carth. The Starks suffer another blow. They don't know this quite yet, but Theon has betrayed them. So Rob had sent Theon to try and win his father over, but unfortunately he turns and takes on Winterfell. At the end, payoffs. The end is really interesting. and, And this is where we debating is it the war story because actually the, the whole series builds towards this we all know that Stannis will be coming to King's Landing and he comes with a very impressive fleet uh, of ships and all the different lannisters have to make different decisions about how they fight this Tyrone has to decide whether to ride for King's Landing or to move against Rodstock. Uh, Tyrion is trying to lead the attack with a very hostile sister next to him and a Completely useless king. Um he Tyrion does lead the first attack, but in the end it's his father Tywin who saves the day um, and destroys Stannis and the Lannisters form an alliance with the Tyrells through marriage. Daenerys is emerging as a bit of a victor here. She's been betrayed by quite a few people in Karth, but she manages to fight Zaro and takes his treasure. So she's ready to buy ships. Randall.
0: Yeah, so. That that's a great summary, and that was I know that was tough because we worked on it for a while, and and and, and we're trying to figure it all out. Um, I, I think it, it I think it's it's very like you said we both you and I kind of toyed with it being war, and the, all the pieces of the war are really there. They have you know as you as you as you mentioned uh prior to uh, starting the podcast you you uh they have the rob stark you know looking dirty just getting back from a battle they have all the preparation and logistics things going on in the background but ultimately all the key scenes are the power grubbing the hey, Renly, you want to team up with me? He's like, no, why don't you bend the knee to me? I'm the king, you know? And then Renly and Stannis talking to each other going, hey, can, I, can, you, can you just say I'm your older brother, not to be the king? He's like, hell no, you suck. I'm not going to be, I want to be the king. So you have all these people scrambling for power. And that's really why we decide ultimately it's a society story because it's about five different people trying to get power. And ultimately, yep. as you mentioned, who is the power guy behind, the puppet master behind everything it's kind of Tywin, as you mentioned. I mean, he's got a small part in this, but really he's the guy that is going is, to, he understands the Game of Thrones better than anyone. Because yeah. even Ned, even Ned and Robert, who actually won the throne, they don't understand. They're not interested. They're yeah. not interested. They were no. never interested in that. And they don't understand the, the Game yeah. of Thrones. They, they're just, they're just battle-axing, rah, kill everybody, and they won the throne. And you need people like that to win the throne, but they don't understand the Game of Thrones.
1: I mean, so if, this was a, if this was a war genre story, it would probably would, would have to strip out a lot of the uh, inner turmoil and political backstabbing that goes on. And it would just be a lot drier. Yeah. Uh, whereas if it was just society and it wasn't, there was no war laced throughout, we wouldn't be so focused on this final battle scene. So it's that final battle scene that makes it, that brings in the war genre. But as as you pointed out so rightly, Randall, society is everywhere in this, like revolution and political um, backstabbing is, is throughout.
0: All right, so we're gonna talk about the obligatory scenes real quick. We're not gonna talk all through them. Uh, we'll have them listed in uh, the notes and the uh the pdfs that we're gonna have available but uh, can you just remind
1: us as well that what the obligatory scenes are for anyone who is new to storygrid
0: so obligatory scenes are basically this depending on the genre they're the scenes that a reader who enjoys this genre expects to see these are the the climatic scenes the the for all the way from an inciting incident in and in start a specific type of inciting incident for the genre all the way to the end when the protagonist has to use his gift and what that gift is. Those are the scenes that, that the reader expects to see and really needs to see in order to be satisfied. And so when we're talking about a war genre, you expect a big battle scene. When you're talking about a, a, a society, uh, which this is a society genre novel, you're talking about a kind of a revolutionary scene, which actually is kind of the battle scene at the end. Uh, when people lose power and gain power because of the results of the battle. Um, and so in this case, they kind of overlap very uh, a lot. Cool. All right. So I'm, I'm just going to talk about a couple of uh, obligatory scenes uh, and then I'll move on to Mel and uh, Perul can choose choose other ones to talk about. But really the, the inciting attack and the protagonist denying, denying responsibility, they're kind of the same because Robb Stark's got a bunch of victories that are off screen against the Lannisters. You hear about them. The Lannisters are getting their butts kicked by Rob and it's they're really surprised he's young, you know, he doesn't have as many men as they do, and he just keeps surprising them and beating them back. But the, but the the protagonists that deny the responsibility are all of the other people who want to beat the Lannisters. The Lannisters are really the villain here. Everyone knows that they shouldn't be in charge, that the kids that the Joffrey is not the rifle heir. Ned, you know, let that escape so everyone really knows it. Um but Stannis, who probably is a rightful heir, his brother Renly, who's who's the younger brother, not the rightful heir. Uh, the Greyjoys, who swore, who should be uh, bending the knee to to John and supporting John, are are separating, and John doesn't want even even he doesn't even want anything to do with the Lannisters. He just wants to keep the North for himself. He wants them to say, hey, you have the North, and then be separate from him. If all four of those people got together and, and teamed up against the Lannisters, it would be over. But since they have they've denied the responsibility to make the seven kingdoms peaceful and, and team up against the enemy. That's, that's their denial of the responsibility to, 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 to move the, to, to move the, the confrontation, the revolution forward as a, as a team. So
1: So we all should pick something, right. And and by the way, the obligatory scenes will be in full in our, uh, as downloadable
2: editor's uh, six core questions sheet.
0: Yeah, go ahead. Mel, go ahead.
2: Um, yeah, I've chosen the scene like um, where the protagonist's initial strategy to outmaneuver the antagonist fails. And this happens multiple times. For example, for um, Caitlin, she wants to trade um, Jamie, the captive, for her girls. But this attempt fails because of his escape attempt. Because he is causing a lot of friction between Catelyn and the kids, K- K- Starks, forcing her to um, send Jamie off with Brienne, still in hope for a trade, but the initial strategy failed. Then, of course, Tywin continues to lose battles against Robb Stark, as Randy already said. Then, Stannis's plan was to, um, with his fleet, to go to King's Landing and like. How do you say? Win the throne, but because of the wildfire, his initial plan gets destroyed as well. (coughs) Then Tyrion, oh, my voice, I'm sorry. Tyrion tries to put pieces in place against Cersei to gain more power over her, but he gets almost killed in the battle by one of her hired gold cloaks. Perul,
1: Yes, um, sorry that you're not feeling well now. (laughs) <laughs> um, you need like a hot cup of honey water honey and lemon um so and uh, this is interesting because you've ch- we've chosen that one of the the core event uh is for, the war is a big battle scene, and in society it be the revolution and in the core event we we see both it is indeed a battle scene, but it is also definitely a scene of revolution. if Stannis had managed to win the Lannisters would (laughs) suffer a massive defeat and would have to relinquish the throne and we would see a totally different change of power. So in the big battle scene we see the protagonist's gifts are expressed or destroyed. That's the way the story would describe it and Stannis attacks King's Landing. He is confident, he really thinks he's going to win Uh, but they're attacked almost immediately by Tyrion who uses wildfire and Stannis' Stannis's fleet is mostly destroyed, but he still, with whatever men he has left, goes to land and goes, gets onto land and starts to attack. And Joffrey, the big coward that he is, goes into hiding. But Tyrion, this is when Tyrion really comes into his own, he leads a counterattack. He manages to rally the troops, but he is attacked from within. I think Cersei plants someone, and in the end he's, he's knocked out, and it's Tywin who saves the day. So the the final scene we see is when Cersei is on her throne, waiting for death, waiting for Stannis to come in, ready to kill herself and her son. But thankfully, it's Tywin who marches in. And that's when we know, okay, revolution has been squashed. The power will reign with the with the Lannisters.
0: I think we end up finding that maybe Joffrey hired the person to kill. Oh, was it? Sure. I, 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 or at least Cersei denies it. So you never, you don't really know who did it. And I don't think it's not really significant. It's one of those two, basically. But,
1: Great. So obligatory scenes done. The other thing we like to look at are the conventions of the global genre. So have quite a few to talk about. I, I think it's interesting that in society, we have this idea of um, a central character with offshoot characters. So they, across them all, they embody, character's personality traits so you've got if you think of the the vast array of characters what's wonderful about them is that they're so different and they come ac- they encompass different parts of personality traits you've got davos john snow and and rob stark to some degree they're the moral end of the character spectrum they are not out for power for power's sake they're out for peace and justice um john snow i think is held up as the, the shining example he's the one that we we possibly love the most um, And then you have someone like Joffrey and Cersei who are so despicable and easy to dislike and morally so questionable. And so this idea of um, if you're of a central character with offshoot characters, how to use this is simply if you're writing a bigger series and potentially a society story, you need to think about just how far you push your array of characters. Have you got people at both ends of the spectrum um, of say morality or um, uh, status, like their inner world views will probably differ vastly. Vandu, uh, um, I wondered, is there any convention that particularly uh, so, interests you?
0: Yeah, so I like the, the clear revolutionary point of no return. The, the, this is the moment when the power shifts must be clearly defined and drama, dramatic, dramatized, dramatized, dramatized. There you go, dramatized, my bad. Dramatized. They must be clearly defined and dramatized. Um, so this is basically, you know, we come with uh Stannis as an overwhelming force. Like there's pretty much no one thinks he's not gonna win. And then when even when his navy is defeated, his land forces, he has sufficient land forces, they still not numbers them like five or eight to one. And so when they attack, they actually they're taking the castle down and and Tyrion leads a last ditch effort to come around the back, um, but he doesn't think he's gonna win. And when uh Tyrion's uh uh, or um, Tywin's uh, men come, he actually thinks he's about to be killed when he gets knocked out. Um, so, th- but the the power exchange right there is Stannis completely loses all his forces almost and they have to retreat. And you don't really see this until the beginning of the next season. But, you know, he's back at Dragon Rock moping, you know, he's lost and and he's trying to come to terms with that and doesn't really have any options until... Um, Sir Davos gives them some uh, suggestions
2: Melanie is there there a convention that you are particularly drawn to? Um, No, I would like to go on to the point of view. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so um, Basically, nothing has changed in the point of view. It's similar to the books of George R. R. Martin We use still multiple point of view characters. So I think instead of repeating ourselves we could answer a focus question um, for example, like how to write a series, it's, it's a really, really big question, but, um, let's, um, put, um, make it a little better to, to work on it. Um, when we ask ourselves how to hook a reader or a viewer in the first episode or a chapter when you're writing a series, um, I just continue. Yeah. I like so to so just to be clear, our,
1: our focus yeah. question is going to be, Specifically, how do you hook a reader or a viewer in the first episode and chapters
2: using the Game of Thrones as inspiration? That's right. Thank you for clarifying. So um, as mentioned in the last um, podcast episode when we talked about point of view, I think Game of Thrones captured the viewer so well because right in the first scene, the show revealed the truth about the existence of those mysterious creatures that are later called the White Walkers. And we as viewers know the rumors are true and we know the ultimate danger lies beyond the wall. But we have to witness how all the forces play their Game of Thrones instead of without without paying attention to what's happening, really. So using dramatic irony when the viewer knows more than the characters was an amazing choice to hook the viewers into the series, as well as not dealing primarily with the fact to what the viewer has become witness to just revealing it piece by piece over time, like we have seen in this season, especially how it ends. It's a great, great hook for season three when we see a part of the dead army. Great, so, I love that. What,
1: yeah. what do you think about season in season two, how it kicks off? How do you think something is, how, I mean, how is it done that's, that's so good? Like what are the storylines are the story kicked off right from the start? Of season two. I think that's. I mean, I'm sort of asking myself this as well as you guys. Just yeah, I'm so, trying to remember. So, what
0: so, this. so the. I think that it's interesting that Tyrion, is it becomes the hand of the king, and he's taking charge. So, in, in my opinion, in this season, Tyrion's kind of the main protagonist. His a lot of his decisions are what's what's making the power the power struggles go back and forth. He's he's the only one he understands the Game of Thrones not as well as his father. But he understands it. Cersei does not. Cersei understands revenge, tit for tat, and 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 she does not understand alliances. She doesn't understand working with others to to move forward and and, and get negotiate and things like that. She has no understanding of that. Jamie just wants to be a leader of a of a warrior horde. Um and so the fact that Tyrion's in charge there, he's the only thing that actually keeps king's landing going if he wasn't there it would be a totally different story um and so i think it's so i think that that's that's kind of the hook there is how is Tyrion gonna be as a hand and what is he gonna do to maintain the power so
1: i agree with you but if you go back to what melanie is saying it's basically dramatic irony was used in season one so that we knew things that the others did not know we have the same device being used in season two so i'm just having a look at like the different strands of story that happens even even Daenerys uh Targaryen even though she is weakened the fact that she exists in in the first episode we know we know that she is seeking power and alliances so no matter what these game of this sort of little party of kings are, are doing there are further threats outside of them that they have no idea about and just just like um uh with Actually, we don't, do we hear about, do we hear from the wall in, in episode one? Uh, I don't think we do. But it, it definitely remains that when you watch as a viewer Game of Thrones, there's so much that you know that the characters just don't know. So you see them make their wrong move. And it's what I think it feels like it propels you along.
0: Well, well, we do see the wall a little bit because they go out they go out of the. They go away from the black. Uh, the the keep to stay with Craster and his wife, which is a setup for the the second episode where they find out that he's giving little boy uh, babies to the, uh, yeah. to the. To the ni- that, to the to uh, the White Walkers.
1: Right, and and even so, so uh, and that's really wonderfully creepy. Um, but and I'm remembering that scene now because uh, John is um,
0: knocked out. Yeah,
1: John is knocked out. Uh, but I was actually thinking more that it's. It's frightening because, so whatever we heard in season one, season two, I think, even from episode one, starts to deepen our fear of what's beyond. And this idea that actually, as Mel, you, you constantly uh, are talking about, there's a horror beyond that yeah. the Game of Thrones is ignoring. And so going back to a dramatic irony, this probably remains the number one concern that they are totally avoiding and totally ignoring.
0: Also, this brings in the magic, right? The what's her name? You said it so wonderfully, Perul. What's the name of the witch?
1: Oh, Melisandra.
0: Melisandra. Yeah. So Melisandra, it brings in the, you know, kills it Renly, uh, and she she has like kind of seduction magic with um Stannis and everything like that. And so this is another something, dramatic irony. We as the watchers readers know that there is some magic out there because the first, uh, the first episode, we know there's dragon magic, but we don't know that there's some kind of Lord of light magic. And this is introduced in the, in the, in this, these first couple episodes and we understand that there's something out there that people don't know about that don't believe in that actually is dangerous. So there's 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 three dangers. You're right. This is there is this lot dramatic energy. As the watchers we know that Daenerys is going to rise, we know that the walkers are one of the biggest dangers, and now we also know there's magic and we don't know if it's good or bad. It seems kind of evilish. And in the end it seems to be you know the solution to everyone's problem. There the Lord of Light had a plan and Jon John Snow was risen from the dead to lead the to lead it. Um, but I don't, we don't understand why the, uh, Melisandre made the mistake with Stannis.
1: I think if anyone ever asks me for a good example of dramatic irony, I'll point to Game of Thrones now. Cause I, I'm sure it can be done very badly, but in this example, we are always, uh, at the edge of our seat, seat, like with a minute Melisandre gives birth to that black creature. Yeah. And we then see Renly in his hut getting ready. It's such a tense scene because you know that he's about, something bad is going to happen to him.
2: I think, I think um, we, 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 um, we like the dramatic irony here, especially in Game of Thrones, because even though we as a viewer have the insights into their plans and schemes, how it all is, is turning out or how they do it, um, that's the surprising thing. Yes, that's,
1: yeah. that's exactly it. That's it. That's exactly it. And that's where I think sometimes it can fail when we almost know if she'd said, I'm going to give birth to a black spirit. Who's going to kill your brother versus saying, just trust me. I'm going to take care of it.
0: I also think that, so we're going on to, you know, how you keep your readers reading when you're talking about a series of books in this case, or seasons, you introduce new and surprising things. And in each book, which makes them unique and worth reading on their own. I think a lot of trilogies and multi, uh, multi book series, they they have the beginning and they have a really fantastic end, but sometimes the middles right. are connecting material and there's nothing. You have the setup and then you have just kind of you have a development during the middle books, but there's nothing new coming out of it. And these these series and these books, like the first one, we had the Dragon Magic and we had the night walkers. All right, the second one we have those two, but now we have Melisandre's Magic or Magic of the Lord of Light. Right, mm-hmm. and then. The third one, we start seeing Dorn, you know, and the Many-Faced Man and things like that. So they're bringing all these elements along for the ride by still developing the old ones from the very first season or the second season. Those are brought forward and matured. And then you're introducing these new elements that just make it you, – now you have a new storyline – you love the other storyline, you love the Dragon Magic storyline, you're interested in the Lord of Light storyline, you're interested in these, all these different storylines that are developing, but then you bring a new one that's just as fantastic, like the Many-Faced Man was really interesting to me, and, 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 it, and every season, every book uh, should bring some new elements to keep your readers interested.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, and I think that goes, going back to that question of do we have can you bring, introduce new storylines? Do they have to be completed? Yes, they, they do have to be completed. Uh, you can bring them in as long as you close them out. Um, let's move on to the controlling idea, which we discussed at some length because we have talked about society and we've also talked about the war genre. So the controlling idea is somewhat of a mashup between the two. So we've got war lacks meaning and revolution fails when leaders are obsessed with the Game of Thrones and fail to address the real enemy. So this goes back to this point we're making that underlying all of this, we know that there's a bigger threat. And the war in that context seems a little bit more meaningless. And if we didn't know about the White Walkers, if we didn't have the Wall, it would just be a, a, a straightforward society and war story. And it, it would be a sort of dishonor, probably with a lot of dishonor and um, m- morality running through it.
0: I think yeah, I think I think we brought up a Mel brought up a really good point um, earlier, uh, maybe prior to when we started the podcast when we were discussing this, and that was the the use of dishonorable methods to get to the crown and be the you know king of the seven king or queen of the seven kingdoms. And I think everyone will see if you watch carefully through the different seasons, everyone who tries to be the king of the realm, uh, king or queen of the realm, they all seem to fail because they kind of go the dishonorable way Stannis uses the blood magic uh, and ends up failing, you know, or, uh, you know, Robert's just not, he's not a good King and he, you know, he, he does, he's not faithful to his wife and he's, 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 he has other failures as well. And you'll find as, as the thing progresses really Rob is probably one of the most honorable characters in the series. And, uh,
1: but yeah, he broke the pact. So again, when you break certain
0: pacts, i um, yeah. You're so Rob breaks his pact in the ne- the next and that season that causes mm-hmm. his death. We ruined it. Yep. And then, but I'm sorry. I meant to say John. John's one of the most honorable guys. Yes. I mean, even even in the final seasons, uh, not to ruin too much, but he he has an ability to make uh to make a a pact with uh you know Cersei and the Lannisters to help fight the White Walkers, but he says I got to tell the truth. You know, I, I I can't do what you're gonna say because I've already made a promise. And every, and all, all all the people are like, why didn't you lie? And he's like, I can't. That's not what I. That's not who I am. I don't lie. And he ends up being the one of the last people standing because of that, because he because he, he is honorable, because he he believes that Ned Stark was one of the most honorable men he ever knew. And he finds out he was. Everyone I miss believed. Ned Stark. Yeah. Yeah. So ah anyway, yeah, it's a great. I still like the series, uh, and I, I'm I'm going to finish watching reading it. All right. Favorite part. I'll start us off. You know, really, you know, I, this was a little bit of connective tissue for, for the, next, uh, the next season, which I really uh, – there's some really good parts there. I, I like Tyrion stepping up, taking charge of the castle. You know, you, some, not something you would have expected from him. You know, finding some armor that almost fits him, leading the attack uh, on, the, on, the, on the troop himself. And stepping up, and, and I, I like Joffrey being the coward that he is. I thought that was very well done. And Sansa, she is, she is another character that develops really great here, uh, throughout the whole se- all the seasons, you know, from being a whiny little princess to, you know, being a strong character later on. And and this is a this whole season is a good setup for her whiny self. What do you think, Mel?
2: Um, I really liked all the scenes beyond the wall because I'm just so fascinated to go beyond to what to what we know like we know like um the how do you call the land where everyone lives the north and the south like we know that we know it from medieval times um we've seen it before kind of except the magic but what is beyond the wall? seeing this huge wall and the white walkers that's like for me every time that's a huge treat and especially in this sea, uh, season to see the army of the dead. I really enjoyed that. Peru? You, uh, you also very, very much like horror, though, don't you? Horror is your
1: No, genre that you
2: enjoy. it like, gets me freaked out, but maybe because I'm, I have become such a big fan of The Walking Dead, I just <laughs> wanted to keep seeing The Walking Dead. That's funny. <laughs> in every uh, version. I, uh... <laughs>
1: I love Tyrion. I love the political games. So I basically love the society elements of the story. I love it when he plays someone for the first time, like he plays Baelish and he plays the eunuch as well, whose name I forget. And he Mm. just, he turns on them and they realize that they have to reckon with him, that he's actually a smart force to be reckoned with.
0: What's our next series going to be? Do we decide? Let's do it. Game of Thrones three, and then we'll, we'll kind of move on to something else after that, right? Well, let's
1: see. It might be, one, it might be very interesting to do an entire analysis, uh, of the entire, entire
0: season, a series. Let's okay. do it. Game of Thrones three, a couple of weeks from now, two weeks from now. Uh, all right, that wraps up our podcast for today. We hope you have a better understanding of the story good methodology, and please leave us a rating and review and tell your author and editor friends about us so we can help others with their writing. For more information, videos, and articles on the StoryGrid, go to storygrid.com or our website, sgshowrunners.com. And if you want to connect to one of the editors directly, links to our web pages are in the show notes. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.